Okay. Hi, I'm here with uh, Jackie Francois. She was on the show last night, and I uh, welcome Jackie to the video blog. Um, one of the things we touched upon was the, the spiritual life. I know you felt like you had some more things to say about that, about prayer life and going deeper. Yeah, because um, I was kind of just talking about, you know, keeping our relationship very surfacey with the text relationship, but then going deeper. And um, I felt a couple years ago I was in adoration, and I really felt that, like, God was saying that he was saying, there's a difference between acknowledging me and seeking me. You know, there's a difference between those two. And then somebody showed this scripture verse to me. Um, it's in Second Corinthians chapter 3, and it says, When we enter into prayer, our, we are transformed from glory to glory. So that when we really truly seek God, we, we should not remain the same. Like we should come out transformed. So every time we come to the Eucharist, we shouldn't be the same person coming out of Mass that we were going in. You know, that we should really literally be transformed from one degree of glory to another because we've come into the presence of God. And I feel like when we truly enter into prayer, that happens as well. And whether it's because in prayer, when we listen, maybe we see um, weaknesses in ourselves or faults, and we and we say, wow, I've never seen that before. And Lord, help me, you know, help me with my pride, help me with my lust, help me with this or that, you know, just to, and we come out holier than we came in and we, we become closer to God and acknowledging our, our failures and then recognizing the virtue that we need to build. Right. I know as a singer, a lot of songs are kind of oriented to, to praise. I mean, all kinds of different aspects of prayer. But mm-hmm. can you talk about the, the praise aspect, uh, you know, praising God and how how does that affect your prayer? Or what is, is that kind of a little bit different? Um, I don't want to say different. I mean, we thank God we might repent of sin or something, but could you talk about the praise aspect? Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to a, a talk or a CD, or maybe I was reading a book from Scott Hahn, and, and, and saying that praise is the highest, the highest thing, to praise God for who he is, not necessarily what he does. Because it's good to thank God, obviously, but we thank God for what he's done. But who he is is greater than anything he has done. And so praise, and I know that when I... When I go to adoration or when I pray, I always immediately go to the thanks, and I say, and I need, and I need to remind myself, okay, focus on the praise, like really think about who God is, and all these different aspects of God and who He is as as the Shepherd, as you know, the King, as like all these different elements of who God is as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit, um, and so as someone who leads, you know, praise and worship to to glorify God in that way, it's just. It's so beautiful for for people to just praise him. And sometimes we kind of pass up the praise part. We go to thanking God and we go to petitioning and asking God. But there is is good goodness in in just meditating on who God is, you know, before we think about what he's done or what he can do for us. It it seems like sometimes in in the Catholic. Uh, the Catholic style of worship, maybe I should say in this country at least, sometimes we're not as good as I think some of our Protestant brothers at praising. And I, I've been thinking more about it because I think it's so key to the spiritual life that we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, some, sometimes we can be very well-intentioned, trying to work on ourselves, work on our faults, but we get bogged down because we're always like looking at ourselves mm-hmm. and trying to improve ourselves. And maybe sometimes we just need to turn to God and, 
and follow him and you know keep our eyes focused on him. Could you talk about um, your, practically um, you spend time in adoration? What do you do during that time? Um, well, there it's. I think it's changed, and I, I see it in my prayer life from when I first really had my conversion, even till now. And it's it's constantly being transformed. It's constantly changing because I'm changing as well, and God's God's changing me. Um, so in adoration, you know, I used to have trouble spending five minutes in silence, and so literally one Lent, I said, okay, I'm going to do a daily thirty minutes, and that was tough. And it, you have to. It's just like any type of exercise. You know, you have to build up. You can't just go and run 15 miles if you've never run before. You kind of have to run a few miles at a time and then keep building. And I feel like that's how it is with prayer. Um, you, as I think it was Brother Lawrence, practice the presence of God. You know, you have to practice the presence of God. And so I practiced the 30 minutes. And, and so I would continue doing that. And then a couple lengths ago, I would do a holy hour. And during that time, so I was like, okay, well, what can I do? Well, I had heard that Mother Teresa and her sisters, you know, they prayed the rosary for the first half hour, and then they spent the next half hour in silence. And so sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'll pray the rosary first and then spend the next half hour in silence, or I'll read. I'll have a spiritual book. Um, Right now I'm reading Fulton Sheen's um, The World's First Love, which is, for me, one of my love languages. You know, we have these love languages. One of my love languages is affirmation, and I really feel like God speaks to me through words. So when I read... I, that's how I hear God speak a lot is through that those words of scripture or the words from um, a saint or a spiritual a spiritual book. That really words really impact me, and so when I read, I'm like, "This is God." Like something will hit me, and then I'll stop and I'll put. Uh, well, Jackie, how do you practically? What do you do during your holy hours? Um, well, it's changed throughout the last few years, and it's not always easy just to go from zero to 100 right away. Because some people, you know, I couldn't just do a holy hour from not really ever doing one before. I had to practice. And it's like you can't run 15 miles when you've never run one before. So I had to start little by little. And so one Lent I, I spent 30 minutes. I, my goal was to every day spend 30 minutes in adoration. And even that, the first, that was tough because you're, when you're not used to sitting in silence for that long, you kind of get restless, and you're okay, okay, what do I think about? And then the next year, I, I decided to do a holy hour, and um, after I had continued those, a lot of times, those half hours of silence. And so sometimes I'll start with a rosary for the first half an hour, and I even sometimes use a, um, uh, what is it, Loving Jesus with the Heart of Mary, which Mother Teresa would give to all these priests, and that has reflections on each mystery. Oh, they're beautiful. Um, and that really brings you deeper into the mysteries. And sometimes I'll sit the next half hour in silence, but a lot of times I like to bring a spiritual book and read because God really always speaks to me through words. One of my love languages is affirmation, and so I feel like God affirms me with the words he uses, whether it's in Scripture or whether it's through a spiritual book. Could you just explain that a minute, the the affirmation love language? Yes. Do you want me to explain the other love languages too or just just that that one? Yeah, just how... um, that you feel the way you feel loved is through when pe- like words oh, and so and also to it, yeah to hear to hear that's how you feel loved and so um you know over um and one of mine is quality time too like not to have a surfacey conversation but to go you know i can't stand going to big parties because <laughs> i i'm always like i want to get to know the people like i can't stand these surfacey conversations but 
But affirmation, and I see that that's how God speaks to me too, is through words. And so when I read scripture, a lot of times if I start reading, something will jump out at me that really touches my heart where I am, and I'll have to put it down and then meditate upon it. And so that's what I do as well in adoration. Right now I'm reading um, The World's First Love by Fulton Sheen, and oh my gosh, I can hardly go two pages without putting it down and being and just wow, okay, let me think about this more and really meditate on it because that, that book is amazing. I, I heard that was his favorite book of his that he wrote. Uh, what is, Can you think of something that really struck you out of that book? Oh, my goodness. Well, he talks about um, just just the way he talks about Mary. There's so many things that I've never, in, that I've never even thought of before. Um, but he just talks so beautifully about about motherhood and her virginity and how they're not opposed to each other, that her motherhood and virginity were actually the fulfillment of – and that's just something we don't even think of. But I, I can't – I'm like I'm still in it. And so I, I always kind of mark places that I want to go back to and and I continue to go back and relook and think, wow, these are some amazing points that he makes and – so the, the meditation part, you read it, something strikes you, then you talk about it with our Lord? Or what does that meditation part look like? Yeah, if it hits me in a certain way, I think it's because whether there's something going on in my life or maybe how, you know, something that I was raised with, maybe that I, I thought wrong about, and I think, wow, okay, all right, let's think about this. Like, why, why does this impact me so much? Like, what, what's going on in my heart? And I kind of turn to God and ask, okay, Lord, let's look. Like, what, what's really going on here? Is this, is this my pride? Or even if sometimes I'm reading something and I'm kind of a little bit obstinate, you know, I think, well, what's really going on? Is this, is this me being prideful? Um, is this something that I've learned that it's not right? And I have to maybe in humility think, okay, maybe – Maybe the truth is this, and I was wrong this whole time. Um, so it's just really asking God, okay, what's going on? What's going on in my heart? You know. What would you say about healing? I know prayer can be such a source of healing for the Christian. Uh, a lot of us are wounded, come out of a culture that can be so damaging, different family situations. Could you speak about that? What would you tell a young person maybe watching this about how to find healing? Well, I, the the Eucharist is the biggest source of healing. You know, when we say, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Like, we really should believe that every time we go to Mass, we are being healed. And, again, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And when 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 there's pain in our lives, because I've met a lot of teens who have had so much pain at young ages from abuse and from just a lot of family issues, more pain than I've ever been through, you know, through death. And they've seen things that are unimaginable. And there's a lot of pain. But my, my, whenever they come to me, I, you know, I might pray with them, but then I say, go to God, go to the Eucharist, go to Mass, go to adoration, and let God heal you. And it takes time. Because that's the thing. We want an instant fix. We want to be healed. And I know when I've experienced the little amount of suffering that I have in my life, but it's still been suffering nonetheless, God uses that to purify our hearts. You know, he says, they say in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. Well, any kind of purification is painful because purification, that's, you know, when you think of purgatory, that's what it is. It's purging us of our of a sin and so it's always a painful process and so when people have a lot of pain I say this is how 
you're going to be, your heart is getting purified and you are able to see God more clearly because of pain. And look at, look at Job, you know, Job's prayer was to see God. And by the end of the book of Job, he went through a lot of suffering, but he got what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And Peter Crave says that in his book, um, The Three Philosophies of Life, when he talks about Job, he said, in the end, he got what he wanted was to see God. And it took pain and suffering to do it. But I think the thing to remember, it takes time. And not to rush God, but to say, God, as long as you want me to be here, I trust in you. Because I've been, you know, there was a, there was a period in my life where and for like three months, I had, I'm a very joyful person, but I was really kind of depressed. And I had a, just every time I had this, this pang of pain, I would just be like, Hail Mary, full of grace. Like, Mama Mary, get me through this. And, you know, and God, I trust in you. I don't know how long this is going to last. But then the joy afterwards, when I got, I was in that desolation, when I got that consolation, right. it was so much sweeter. And I felt more joy than ever before because I had gone through that pain and suffering in my own interior life and that darkness it's like once you see the light it was it was so much greater than ever before and I thought thank God I'm in this place now like thank you God I will enjoy being in this period of consolation and joy for as long as it lasts because it doesn't always last a long time you know so in your work with young people speaking to them and um, and just seeing where they're at what what is one of the some of the aspects of the Christian message that they're really hungry for, that really strikes them, that resonates with them? I think, and I see, we see this in the culture right now, too, is to know how good they are and to know who they are. I mean, even in secular songs right now, with Katy Perry's Firework, with Pink, she has, you know, um, Perfect, and then Selena Gomez just came out with another song saying that you're beautiful. And it's, if even the secular culture knows that there's a problem right now with our identity and not knowing our own worth. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, our culture tells us that our worth, it's all about what we do. You know, that we, we you know, you can get them, you're the best, you're perfect the way you are. And it's like, okay, well, you're not perfect the way you are. You, you know, we have to recognize that we're not perfect and that we need God. And, um, you know, because or else we think we are God if we think we're perfect. Um, they say that's the new atheism, not that God yeah. doesn't exist, but that he exists, but it's we're God, you know? <laughs> exactly, and you see that. But the truth is that we were made with great dignity and we were made in the image and likeness of God, but that through sin we are broken and we have weaknesses, but that we still need God. And teens desperately need to hear who they are as daughters and sons of or yeah, yeah, daughters and sons of, of God. Um, because they don't know who they are. And they, there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of um, really this, you know, there's a lack of hope. I feel like that's the virtue that's really lacking, that the teens feel like there's not a lot of hope because they don't see a lot of holy people. I mean, I, I feel like I see holy people all the time. I'm surrounded because of my ministry. I get to travel all over the place and see amazing people. But they, I've heard teens come up to me say, I feel like I'm the only one. And they don't see it in the media. They don't see examples of joyful people. They see Britney Spears, you know, going crazy. And they see all these people who are successful having affairs. And, and, and there's just a lot of like, wow, yeah, there's no hope for me then, you know. Right, right. So I, that's what's so beautiful about the saints and, and with, you know, blessed Pope John Paul, you know, that he's these people who show us that it's possible to live a life of joy and peace in, in the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, you mentioned your work. Uh, you do a lot of traveling just about every weekend. I think you're out. How is that? That seems like that can be a grind. Is that uh, what's that like? <laughs> I've had to kind of learn how to travel, um, and I told my spiritual director, I said, I I'm, I haven't been able to make a daily holy hour, and he said, you know, you'll have to learn how to make a holy hour on a plane and on a bus, and I was like, okay, you know, because it's tough. That I love. Once I started doing this full time, this is exactly what. I knew that this is exactly what God had been preparing me for my whole life. Um, the toughest part is the traveling and the waiting. I mean, you're just waiting in airports. I probably spent a third of my life waiting in airports or on planes, you know, being on planes. And the hardest part is the exhaustion. You're just never on a, a time zone for more than a week at a time, hardly. And um, But I think then I kind of put it in perspective and think, okay, St. Paul had to walk everywhere, first of all. He was, like, shipwrecked, you know, <laughs> all these things that – I don't have to. I'm like, I'm not stoned, you know, every, I mean, that kind of stone, you know, like, well, neither one actually, but, you know, I just think, okay, it's, I'm, I get this easy that I'm flying across the United States and I'll have to walk or take a carriage or something or ride my bike, you know. Um, Do you ever kind of evangelize in the airport? I know we travel and it's easy with wearing a habit, you know, because right. people talk to you, but do you find it? Do you strike up conversations and things? Yes, definitely. I have some. I want to write a book about all these experiences that I've had because a lot of times I'll sit next to somebody. Well, and when I say I'm Catholic, I get two responses like, oh. And then I tell them what I do. Like, I'm a chastity speaker. And then I get the, oh, do teens really listen to that? You know, I get that response. But then I get also the, I'm Catholic too. And one time I sat next to a guy whose church I was going to be at in, you know, in a month. I was like, I'm coming to your church in a month. But one, there was one specific time that really stood out. This guy sat next to me, and he found out I was a worship leader, and he was shocked. He couldn't believe I was going to go record my album in Tucson. And he said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that's – I would have never guessed that you, that's what you did. And he proceeded to tell me his life story and how much of a sinner he was. And he literally – I just kept asking him questions like – well, if you love your daughter, I mean, he had been, this guy had been in jail. He had a daughter out of wedlock, all this stuff. And I said, well, if, how much do you love your daughter? And he said, oh, I would die for her. And I said, well, if you would die for your daughter and you love her that much, why don't you think God loves you and he would die for you? And he kind of just, he'd never thought of that before. And by the end of the flight, he said to me, he said, my friends would never believe that I was talking about God. He said, I wish this flight were to Europe because it was the first time. And he kept saying to me, he couldn't believe that I was joyful as a, because he kept making fun of me. He kind of was like making fun of the fact that I was a worship leader. And I kept just laughing with him and kind of making fun of myself too. And, and he just was shocked because he had this idea that all Christians were these serious, you know, very puritanistic um, law, you know, based mm -hmm. people. And he, and what's kind of sad is he had never experienced a joyful Christian. And Mother Teresa says, joy is the net of love by which we catch souls. Joy. And our joy is what's going to draw people close. It's like, it's like a flame that the moths, like they can't stay away from because people long for that joy. And that's just a gift. Like I'm a very joyful person. My mom is a very joyful person. So that's, you know, I just kind of, I ha I'm, that's just kind of my demeanor anyways. But the Holy Spirit, you know, takes my joy and transforms it to bring people closer to God, not, not to me. And 
And so that was one experience. And I've, I, get, I call it my airplane ministry mm-hmm. because I sit next to people. I pray for the people I sit next to. Sometimes I don't talk to them because I'm asleep, you know, <laughs> I'm exhausted. But I've had so many conversations where when I say what I do, um, people say, oh, I was baptized Catholic, but I left the church. And then I'll say, well, you know, why? And, and I've tried try to clear up some misconceptions about the church and about what I do and about chastity and... And a lot of times people will get my card and I'll give them my website and say, hey, you know, I have this blog. Or, But I've left a few times giving them my CDs, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's been a great – I love airplane ministry. It's fun. <laughs> I know. It has its own culture and you can, you can strike up conversations much more easily. You know, more things are permitted, it seems like, you know. And you can ask invasive questions, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> With somebody sitting right next to you. <laughs> right. Before I forget, I wanted to ask you, do you, in your prayer, do you incorporate music sometimes? Do you bring a, a guitar to chapel or something, or maybe at the home? You know, I, as I get older, I start getting more contemplative, but um, sometimes if I'm alone in a church by myself, I'll just kind of sing to God, especially we have this at my church, at my home parish, we have a tiny chapel, and if I'm in there by myself, um, sometimes I'll just... I'll sing what's on my heart or I'll sing a song of praise. I, I don't really ever take the guitar by myself, um, but sometimes I'll have a group of friends and we'll we'll do worship together. And I always love, like when I lead worship, I always love to lead people into silence. Mm-hmm. After singing a song, kind of just lead it into some silence to really let it sit and to really let them reflect on, okay, you know, we've been brought to this place. Because I feel like all worship should lead to that, mm-hmm. should lead to that interior um, really dialogue because you can praise but it's like you know like praising is wonderful and good but it then it's like okay well now there needs to be time where you can let God speak to you so I love singing and sometimes I'll when I'm by myself I'll I'll just sing to God I know in your talks too <clears throat> sometimes you you'll have a song and do you kind of transform that into a prayer session as well with the young people yeah I always feel awkward giving concerts because really especially a lot of my music is worship music so I don't ever really feel comfortable just kind of singing my song so I always try if I'm giving a talk and um, I have a song I'll, I'll tell the teens what the song is about and why and I said well let's make this a prayer you know for instance your kingdom is glorious and we say Jesus remember me I'll talk about when Jesus was on the cross and how we have two decisions in our life. We either have the decision of the one criminal who said he was continued to persecute and mock Jesus. And then I said, but we, the other decision is to say in humility, I, I look at this man. Like we're the guilty ones. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so I tell the teens when we sing this part, you know, this is, this is a genuine prayer. Like if that's all you say during the day is Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a wonderful prayer of humility. Yeah. I mean, if you wake up saying that and you go to bed saying that, you know, and if my song gets stuck in their head, great, because then they're singing that and they're saying that. So I was struck by that, too. We were listening to that song last night that, you know, it's basically a cry, save me, Lord. You know, I think sometimes in our American can-do kind of spirit culture, you know, I'm, I'm going to work out my salvation. I'm going to do it. And then, but that song really kind of highlighted we throw ourselves on God's mercy, ask his forgiveness. He's the one that takes us to heaven, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, what, what have you seen? Back to your traveling a minute. What, 
What do you see? Do you have hope? I mean, you go to all these different parishes and everything. Do you see signs of hope, signs of life? Yes, I see. There are some amazing people. I just think that I just come away from experiences being so happy to be part of the body of Christ because I think, man, I have brothers and sisters, not only in the youth ministers, like I see it in the youth ministers, the priests, the diocesan organizers, you know, the that gives me a lot of hope to see that even in places that we don't necessarily think are holy places. Like I tell people, I'm like, oh, I went to Vermont. And they're like, Vermont, that's like one of the most unchurched states in the country. I'm like, I know, but there's good stuff going on. You know, it does, and even, even though it might be small, I know amazing people in Vermont who are doing the work of God. And I'm from California and people think that all the time. Like, you're from California? You know, <laughs> how are you a solid Catholic at all? <laughs> I yeah. think... There's, there's some awesome stuff going on in California because we have to fight against this culture of death, you know. And, and so I see that there's hope in what's going on in all these different places, but also with teenagers. There's some amazing teens. I've seen some awesome transformations because of Christ, because teens for the first time experience the Eucharist in a way that they've never experienced before. Um, one girl, she was, the day before, it was at a Steubenville conference, and she – Oh, she came up to me and she just told me her story. She's like, I don't even know what it means to have dignity in words. She said she was abused and she just, her family's, had, her brother was a drug dealer, her parents physically, you know, emotionally abused her, all this stuff. And I told her to, I said, just give it to God. I know this is, I prayed with her and I said, just give everything to God, just let it go. And she came up to me the next day. She looked like a different person. I mean, literally, even just the way she looked, like her hair was down. She looked beautiful. She looked like a, she was radiating. And she said, Jackie, last night at Adoration, I had this vision that Jesus was on the water and I was on the shore and he just was beckoning me to come and just to give him everything. And she, and she said she had a few other visions and then she's like, I've never felt joy and peace like this. So I've literally gotten to see you know, sometimes you don't get to see the transformation because you plant a seed and you go away, you know, and you don't see these teens ever again. But sometimes I do get to see these the things that do happen. And it just gives you hope that, you know what, I I might travel and speak, but I'm just planting the seeds. God is the one who does the work. And and I trust that he He will do it. And, and so I don't ever despair at all when I see our culture. I mean, sometimes I think, oh, man, our culture, this is, you know, what's going on with us? But I, I see, when I see teenagers and, and, the, and how God is changing their lives, that gives me so much hope to think, okay, these teens are going to be the ones now coming and, and speaking and sharing the gospel. We need more, you know. We need more women who are sharing the gospel because there aren't a lot. And, but we need more young men to step up too and, and, and fight against this culture as well. But We had a guest recently say, um, you know, the culture, the enemy, Satan, you know, can never, like, like eradicate marriage or stamp out marriage. I know we, there's a lot of indicators saying, you know, marriage is in de- decline. But I remember she she gave us hope by saying that you know it's written in our very natures you know we're made to give of ourselves and uh, and I that was kind of empowering because I think sometimes that is a tactic of Satan to think well all is lost California's lost you know <laughs> I remember my first trip to San Francisco I was I had kind of bought kind of our media perception that it's all liberal you know but like you said there's always pockets of faith and there's large yeah. movements in San Francisco we're doing good things. What about the the marriage scene? What what do you find there that 
you know, I know we talk about having to almost convince people, young people, to get married. What do you tell young people about marriage? Well, the, one, the devil cannot create. He is a creature, and the devil can only twist what God has created and make it seem, you know, evil or whatever. And so I say our, our de- what we see of marriage is just twisted because we don't know – a lot of people, we don't even know how we really were made. We see it in the echoes of our hearts and in the desires of our hearts for union and communion, but then it gets twisted because Satan does such a good job taking the most beautiful and sacred things and twisting them to make them seem evil or bad or dirty or whatever. And And so I tell teens, like – Marriage is a beautiful good thing and sex is a beautiful good thing because they've been told the body's bad and, and sex is bad when really it's some it's beautiful and it it's the the greatest way that that love on this earth mirrors the love of God in heaven. And even in our hearts, and I tell teens this too, I said, listen to love songs because love songs on the radio, you know, when, when they, you don't ever hear a love song that says, I want to love you for two weeks. You know, you hear songs. And I said, well, how long do we say we want to love for? And they say forever. And I say, exactly. We want a love that lasts forever. You don't want a love that lasts for two weeks, right? So no love songs will ever say that. And so we know, even in our hearts, even in secular culture, when you listen to music, We know that we're made for a love that lasts forever. And where do we find that love? We find that in heaven with the marriage of Christ and the church. And the most used analogy in all of scripture is is the analogy of God's love for us as a bridegroom and us as bride and how marriage is a foretaste of heaven. And these kids... They don't hear that from, and especially if they have parents who are divorced and they have, they see all these broken relationships, they think, well, I'll just live with some, live together with somebody and test, test drive that out. And I think, man, you know, this is, we've been lied to. We've been lied to in our culture because we're so afraid that, you know, we're going to have another broken, so we don't even do it now. And now it's like less and less and less people are getting married because they don't see the beauty and the dignity of marriage as a sacrament. You know, what strikes me more and more, too, is just, you know, by preaching the Christian message of what real love looks like, you know, this giving of ourselves, sacrificing our time and things and whatever, investing in the other person, being there, this faithful commitment, uh, those are just at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And you find those things in marriage, right? You, You find this... This place of love for each other. So marriage is a place, a path, a vocation to holiness, right? We can live out these most beautiful aspects of our Christian faith and, uh, you know, just how vital it is for our own development. Um, so I always think, you know, that's such a, a powerful thing if we get that, that message across. What do you think is, um, like, some of the more damaging things out there in our culture that kind of distorts that message that young people can get caught up into? Well, Pope John Paul said in Love and Responsibility, this is, uh, I, this is the, like, one, if I have one quote from that book, it's that he said, the opposite of love in the future is not going to be hate, but the opposite of love is going to be use, that we will use each other for, as objects for our, own, for our own pleasure rather than seeing each other as persons to be loved. And things like pornography, contraception, um, homosexuality, all these things, abortion, where we see human beings as objects, rather than persons um, for our own pleasure. It's, and, and, and we can say that these things are benefiting, like contraception. Oh, but then I can love my husband. You know, I can, we can do whatever we want anytime. And it's like, but that's not, and you can see with even just 
psychologically, sociologically, the statistics around all these things and how the decline of marriage and all this stuff, um, when we view people as objects, that's when that's when the culture, you know, we, we start using each other and we don't learn how what real love is. That real love is a self, it's a gift of self. Right. What about the, uh, the same-sex marriage debate? Uh, I know the polls show, seem to show that we're, use, we're losing young people on this issue. More and more are in favor or indifferent to it. Do you ever talk about that issue with the young people? I do, and if I have an hour talk, sometimes I'll, I'll just brush upon it because I want to be able to go deeper because it's such a sensitive issue because people at the heart really want to be compassionate. And I know that people want – they say, well, why, won't, why wouldn't you want someone who – two people who love each other to, to allow them to get married or whatever? And it's – and there's a lot of compassion. So and – I, and I have friends who struggle with same-sex attraction and who are chaste. But then I do know people as well who struggle with same-sex attraction and just give, and give in to the culture and what – so it's – it's I feel like at the heart of it, people want to be compassionate. But the truth is and, – and this is what I love about Pope John Paul's theology of the body – is that our bodies don't make sense on our own, and we are our, our own, and we see the complementarity of male us as male and female, and there's no way to get around that. And so I've read, you know, I sometimes I'll read articles. Um, the Love and Fidelity Network is a great. They're from Princeton University, and um, they put out some great articles about marriage and. You know, you have these debates between these theologians, and sometimes it's like, okay, this is kind of hard because hard to understand because they're using so many heady, you know, heady terms. But just the very basic fact that we were created male and female, right. and that's how we were made. And when it comes to procreation, like to that, love always includes life. You know, you can't separate the two um, because of Jesus's gift on the cross of him. That was the complete act of love was to surrender and to lay his life down. That's what, that's what a married couple does is they lay their life down for each other in that beautiful marital act. And that's a self gift. And, and people, you say, well, it's not about that, but this is from coming from a contraceptive culture that also cuts off love from life anyways. And my response is, listen, the church is not against home, just like the the homosexual act. It's also against premarital sex too between two heterose- a heterosexual couple. Like it's not. I think people think we we can't stand people who you know are homosexuals, but that's not the truth. The truth is we want people to see the beauty of marriage and the beauty of love and the self gift that even when it comes to premarital sex or even adultery or contraception. We say that too, like that's not complete love. You're lacking in the free, total, faithful, fruitful love that Christ gives us. So it's not this agenda or this hatred. It's, it's this longing for souls to get to heaven. And my friends who struggle with same-sex attraction and live a life of chastity, oh my gosh, I have so much respect for them because the culture just says, well, you were born that way, so just indulge. Like that's what, just do it. And they say, no, first of all, this is not my identity. And I am a child of God first and foremost. And I also think of myself like if I struggled with same-sex attraction and I longed to get to heaven, my first priority would be to get to heaven. I would give up anything. I would die for heaven. And I think even now I'm a single chaste person. If God said to me, Jackie, I don't ever want you to get married, I'd be like, okay, I will do it to get to heaven. If Whatever it takes. You know what I mean? Right. Like to me it doesn't matter I, because I want to get to heaven so badly 
that I don't care what I have to sacrifice. And I think people forget that this is why this is why the church does what it does because we we have a care for souls and we long for souls to get to heaven and to learn what real love is. And love is not selfish. It's not about what I can get, but it's about sacrifice and what I can give. And sometimes this culture doesn't want to deal with sacrifice. We want just what we want, you know. Um, about uh, you, you, we talked last night about that that ache of singlehood. I think was the phrase. Um, I'd like to kind of stem you from that. I know a lot of obviously young people have that good and holy desire. They want to get married. What do you tell people about um, like finding a possible you know husband or wife? Real aggressive, or <laughs> stay at home, form a cloister, <laughs> pray for a. The guy to come knocking at the door. Oh How do you balance that? Oh, man. Well, because you are single and yeah. you are, I think you've discerned, you feel like you have a call to marriage, right? Yes. Yeah. I discern being a, a nun or a sister. And um, I feel that tug towards marriage, but I still also feel like, okay, well, you know, whatever you want, Lord, I will still listen. Um, the first thing I tell people is one, don't settle. Like, I literally would rather be single for the rest of my life than to settle in marriage because. I would I would never want to marry um, somebody who wasn't on the same page as me spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. I just, for me, I want to be equally yoked. So I, rather than settling, I would really rather be happy and single than miserable and with somebody. And not to say that you're not going to have tough times or sacrifice, but I feel like from sacrifice and suffering can come joy. But marriage becomes a lot harder, you know, when you're it, marriage is tough enough. But when you're not equally yoked spiritually, oh, man, it gets even more tough. But So I tell people that first. But then, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about dating. And there's a lot – there are a lot of – and some of my friends who are very wise and um, talk to married couples about it uh, because there are a lot of different opinions out there about <laughs> about dating. But I think – Online services and what the dating sites. And, yeah, and I've had some friends actually get married off of like Catholic Match or something. And, and I think it's good – you know, to to put yourself out there in a sense that um, I think we need to reclaim what dating is because in this culture, dating has an immediate um, – there's an immediate thought of uh, physical um, attachment and dating. Like we think, okay, because we see it on TV. On the first date, people are already having sex, you know, or the second date. And that's, okay, we need to reclaim what it looks like to date or to court, you know. Um, and I think it's healthy to – for guys to step up and ask girls on dates. Um, there was an article <laughs> that I read that said, stop hanging out with girls and start dating them, you know, yeah. because so many guys were like, you know, let's just be friends. And or girls will say that too. It's like, you know, step up. And I also heard another male speaker say, when a guy asks a girl out on a date, it's, it's, it's humbling. A guy needs to have that humbling experience to put himself out there for rejection. And I was like, wow, I've never thought about that before. But it is always – I always feel flattered if a guy does take that step to ask because I know that's hard if I – I could say no. And so I think it's good to to date. Just dating is just getting to know somebody. It's not a physical relationship. It's just getting getting to know somebody um, and to and who they are. And then if after a few dates you realize that this is not – because dating is for marriage. People also don't real, realize that. Young teenagers just want to date to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, it's, it's okay. Dating is for marriage. It's to find your future spouse. 
And if after a few dates you realize, okay, this is not the person, you say, thank you so much, you know, I, I will not be going on any further dates <laughs> with you. And it doesn't need to be this because a lot of times young, young adults will on the first date be like, oh, this is the man I'm going to marry or like, you know, no. And it's like just be a little more detached. We, we get so needy, I feel like, in relationships. It's just like just get to know somebody and it's, it shouldn't be this unhealthy attachment, but it's just that's what dating, we need to reclaim it. And I think that makes people more attractive, too. I mean, if you come in and really needy, clingy, or, or <laughs> yeah. you know, this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. So it, I think, you know, I think that's kind of a message, too, especially maybe for young women who, mm-hmm. you know, they're desirous to be beautiful and how the faith can, you know, makes us more beautiful in every way. Yeah. One, just to jump back to the, the same-sex marriage thing just for a moment, that, you know, one of the things I know I center on sometimes in preaching and all is that, you know, this is a unique reality, marriage. You know, it's bringing together the male and the female. Mm-hmm. And those differences there serve a union, mm-hmm. right? That it's not possible with members of the same sex. Do you ever talk about that or meditate about that, the complementarity of the the two sexes? Yes. And I, and being kind of brought up in a very feminist, you know, women can be just like men. It's like, even even still when I hear things, I think, okay, I have to know the beauty of femininity and the beauty of motherhood and fatherhood and the complementarity. You know, sometimes people, especially with like the feminist movement, there was a lot of damage with that. And the irony is that in the feminist movement, women weren't becoming more feminine. They were trying to become more masculine, which doesn't make sense at all. You would think in a women's movement, they would want to be more like women. And right. and, and they were cutting, you know, it was, it was just strange. And I, I feel like it's beautiful to learn, to see the beauty of the complementarity. Because even psychologically, sociologically, men and women are different, you know. Um, a psychologist was, there are a few studies that, you know, they had little boys and little girls in different rooms you know, working with blocks and how they're, what they would build. And men, the girls would build like little, like more inclusive, like circles things. And guys would build things that, you know, more like towers and, and just how we're different there. I mean, you cannot say that we're, we are the same in dignity and we're the same in that way, but we are not the same. You know, we're equal in dignity, but we're not the same. And I think our culture tries to make us not even have a gender. You know, they try to make us neutral or neutered. And that's what we do. What do you, you were raised in Southern California, and your, your parents were out of the 70s, right? And that's the heart of that kind of that radical feminist movement. What, what do you think the Christian message brings to our understanding of femininity? How does it heal some of the cultural views of it? Mm, that's beautiful. Well, just to, I think, Mary, <laughs> that's yeah. Mary, you know, yeah. she, oh man, she has healed a lot of, a lot of wounds in me and what it looks like to be a woman, because people think that the church says that a woman is, you know, well, first of all, we think that humble means that you are like, not necessarily submissive, because that's not the word, but like, that you are just like this, this weak person, and that you are being dominated. We think that that's what that means. Um, but the, to look at Mary and Mary was the most joyful. I mean, she was a Jewish mother and Jewish mothers, you know what I mean? Sometimes they are strong women. And to think that Mary was not a strong woman, but strong, the lion and the lamb, you know, the lion and the lamb, the lion that would, she would, she would go through that suffering and she would let her son go through that suffering 
but the lamb as well, the beauty and the gentleness. Um, I, that's that femininity, motherhood. You know, we aren't, motherhood is not something that we do. Motherhood is who we are and how we're made in our bodies. Even, you know, and Fulton Sheen talks about this too. He talks about how we're all, well, we are mothers. And even if women aren't able to have children, they're still mothers spiritually. And I know women who are unable to have children, they still adopt. But even if they don't adopt, they're still spiritual mothers, even nuns. That the Catholics would be crazy if we said that if you didn't have children that you weren't mothers because then what we would say about nuns. But nuns are amazing spiritual mothers and and give you know children to God all the time because right. of of the work that they do. Um, and so I just think there's a beauty in in learning. And obviously, I'm a single person, so how do I know about motherhood? But I feel as well like a spiritual mother when I when I speak and I'm I'm giving. I'm I'm taking, you know, this divine life. I'm I'm giving these kids and pointing them to God, saying, Here's the divine life, you know. So I feel like a spiritual mom as well a lot of times. Um but but womanhood is it's it's strong and it's beautiful. And when people hear that word like submit to your husbands, I think, okay, when I really learned about what the word submit means, it means to be under the mission. And I think I want to be under the mission. And it says in Ephesians 5 that the mission of the husband is to lay his, to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Well, Christ loved the church by dying for it. So a husband is called to lay and sacrifice his life for his bride. I want to be under the mission of a husband whose mission is that. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much.